Welcome, pool guys and gals, to the Let's Talk About Pools podcast, where your host, Lauren Broom, will take a splash into many topics in the pool industry to educate all aquatic professionals. Listen in, and you just might be surprised what you'll learn. So let's jump right in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Let's Talk About Pools podcast. This is Lauren Broom, your host, and today I'll be interviewing Dr. Bill Kent on legislation in Florida to help with drowning prevention in the state of Florida for those children where the highest risk of drowning and death happens, leading cause of death, ages one to four is drowning. So it it did get approved. It got combined in the Department of Education bill. It will now have the school districts when a child is entering kindergarten being asked the parent being asked if their child knows how to swim or not and if they answer no then the school district will provide local information to them where they can get local swim lessons for their child it's a conversation piece and it gets parents to talk so listen into this episode it's very exciting we'll talk about the international hall of fame some of the famous people dr kent has seen at um, the facility and a little bit of other odds and ends in regards to drowning prevention so hope you enjoy this episode and i want to say thank you to both of my sponsors of the podcast episode today which is Camerai and Skimmer. Thank you so much. Hi. Don't lose peace of mind over the safety of your beautiful pool. Introducing Camerai, the fastest artificial intelligent pool safety system. Camerai uses artificial intelligence to create a virtual smart fence around your pool to help save lives. Monitor your pool 24-7 from your home or anywhere on your phone. Camera Eye detects when someone crosses the AI smart fence through overhead cameras. If there is distress or near drowning behavior in the pool, alerts and alarms notify you through the smart hub, siren, phone, and app within 10 seconds. Affordable and easy to install. Keep a camera eye on your pool for 24-7 peace of mind. To learn more, visit www.camerai.ai. Welcome everybody today to Let's Talk About Pools. And on my episode today, my guest is Bill Kent with Corner Express. Welcome, Bill. How are you today? I'm excellent. Thank you, Lauren. Happy to uh, be here as a guest. I'm, I'm thankful to have you here today as well. And tell, tell the audience a little bit about yourself in case they don't know who you are. <clears throat> Well, that'll take a while. (laughs) I'm a past president of the Florida Swimming Pool Association. I'm a past president of the National Trade Association. I'm currently the chairman of the board of the International Swimming Hall of Fame, uh, based, as you know, here in Fort Lauderdale. And um, I'm still the CEO of our company, even though a little less than five years ago, I sold the company to the employees. It's called an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP for short. And um, one of uh, my main missions uh, in my role as the chairman of the board of the International Swimming Hall of Fame has to do with um, the original spiritual mission Uh, that the founding fathers of the Swimming Hall of Fame uh, identified in 1965 when they created the organization. And that uh, mission is called Every Child a Swimmer. 
Awesome. And that's what we're going to be talking about mostly today on this episode. So tell me about your involvement in Florida regarding the, that legislative bill, Every Child a Swimmer. Well, <clears throat> that all came from a conversation uh, around two years ago uh, with uh, Cassie McGovern, who's one of the local uh, people here in Broward County for uh, drowning prevention. Um, and um, uh, somebody during a conversation on the phone gave me what I call a great idea. And that little seed has um, now developed into uh, a program to try uh, to have the state of Florida uh, add into the process for a child entering kindergarten uh, a question of the parents. And the question is very simple. Have you taught your child to swim? And while that isn't the goal, the goal is that every child be a swimmer, it at least gets it on the radar screen for the parents if they had not already thought about it. And uh, I've had nothing but positive uh, result, uh, responses to it, but the reality of getting anything through the Florida legislature is way more complicated than just having a good idea. Yes, and it is. So, so for the last two years, I've been uh, going in baby steps towards that. And earlier this week, uh, thanks to a government relations Zoom meeting last week, uh, between the Palm Beach and Broward chapters of the Trade Association, uh, one of the senators uh, came back to me uh, two days ago and said, we would like to submit to the dr for drafting in the legislature uh, your bill. And of course, I said, that's fabulous. And so that's actually happening as we speak. That's awesome. So that's the current news right now on, on the, the bill. That's the big news. Yeah, that's, big that, news. that's awesome. Thank you for letting our audience know, know that. Uh, so what inspired you to promote this bill and the initiative for it? Well, um, first of all, every organization needs a, a spiritual mission. Uh, it's, if you want to have an organization that's uh, vibrant and, and positive in its culture and in, in, in its accomplishments, uh, you need a spiritual mission. I've always believed in that. Our company has one here called uh, Working Together, Growing Together, and Winning Together. It's um, beautiful. That, encompass, that encompasses our relationship with both uh, our customers, of course, but also with our suppliers. Uh, we want them to be winners as well. And uh, so that's kind of um, the background. Uh, at the, we believe at the Hall of Fame that it's a parental responsibility to teach your child to swim. Um, swimming is different than uh, any other sport. Uh, in other words, uh, if you can't play tennis or you can't play baseball or basketball or soccer, or whatever sport you choose, uh, it won't kill you. However, that's not true of swimming. Uh, if you can't swim, it can kill you. And that's the difference. Uh, and it's, it's a unique difference that um, the bodies of water uh, hold for us. It can either be something that we love, embrace, and, mm -hmm. and gain benefit from, or it can be something that can kill us. In fact, I have an interesting story that I used at that um, World Aquatic Health Conference. If you'd like, I'll tell that story for you. Sure, go ahead, right? Go ahead. Okay. 
So there was once a professor who wanted to go down the river. So he approached a local boatman who agreed to row him downstream for a small sum of money. As they made their way downstream, the professor decided to show off how intelligent and how highly educated he was. So he decided to test the boatman. Taking up a stone he picked from the riverbank, uh, the professor asked the boatman, have you ever studied geology? The boatman looked at him and said, eh? No, hardly even understanding what the word meant. The professor then said, I'm afraid 25% of your life is gone. The professor loftily boasted. The boatman, of course, he's feeling really bad about his ignorance and continues to row on. As they move further downstream, the river currents begin to get stronger and stronger. The professor picks up a leaf and asks the con condescendingly, <clears throat> Mr. Boatman, have you studied botany? Confused, the boatman again had to say, no. The professor again shakes his head and says, 50% of your life is gone. He then signals him to carry on rowing. As they move downstream, the currents get even stronger and stronger. The water is moving faster and the boat is beginning to sway violently. Suddenly the professor sees a mountain range, points at it and asks the boatman, have you studied geography? Feeling inferior and humiliated, the boatman says, well, no. The professor snaps back and says, I thought so, then 75% of your life is gone. At this point, the river became a raging torrent. <clears throat> the water is moving so strongly that the boatman loses control of the boat and it smashes against the rocks and springs a leak. It begins to sink. This time, the boatman turns to the professor and asks, Professor, do you know how to swim? To which the professor answers, No. <clears throat> then I'm afraid 100% of your life is gone and he leaps off the boat and powers his way to shore. So that's my story about the need to know how to swim, because you really don't know as you weave your way through the life cycle, if and when you'll ever need that ability to swim. But it's kind of like riding a bike. Once you've learned to swim, you do not forget it. I Thank you very much. That It relates the need to learn how to swim for our children, for adult people, um, in such a way with a story that people can relate to. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So, you, as you stated before, you are the chairman of the International Swimming Pool Hall of Fame in Fort Lauderdale. What does that mean to you? Uh, well, it means a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I've been on the board. Uh, I'll tell you how I got involved in the Swimming Hall of Fame. Um, I'm from the swimming pool industry, as you know, Lauren. And the mm -hmm. swimming pool industry kind of operates on a parallel path with the world of aquatics. So I, I have a tendency to think of all of those people who are in aquatics as user groups for our product. And um, I got into the swimming pool industry at the beginning. I started um, a different career on January the 1st, 1970, believe it or not. And I know I don't look that old, but that's a story. <laughs> and, 
Uh, and I fell in love within the first six months. I went out and saw one of our pools. I was with a manufacturing company that built aluminum pools. This is back in Ohio, where I'm originally in Cincinnati, where I'm originally from. And the first time I ever went out and saw uh, a bunch of kids swimming in one of our pools, I was thrilled, just plain thrilled. And even today, 50 years later, I'm still thrilled by what I know are the results of all of our work in the swimming pool industry. Yeah, uh, because we're we're the organizations that build the pools, service the pools, renovate the pools, and all of that stuff. Um, and that's quite different from the world of aquatics people, where yeah. they uh, are um, basically all user groups. In my mind, um, you know, if you think about uh, the world of aquatics from a fifty thousand foot level, there's the user groups, there's the providers. Uh, there's the supporters, and then there's the casual non-users, and each one of us plays a role in that world of aquatics. Uh, the Swimming Hall of Fame actually um, started as a second-generation swimming pool project, by, um, operated by built first built and then operated by the city of Fort Lauderdale. Uh, back in 1929, there was a pool that was built literally right across uh, from the beach. Uh, called the Casino Pool, and, and that pool lasted until the mid-60s from 1929 and then had to be replaced, and that's when the Hall of Fame pools that everybody is familiar with uh, were built. Uh, the Casino Pool was a huge attraction. There were all kinds of water shows and all that sort of thing that went on in wow. the 30s, uh, and uh, so there there became a tradition uh, that uh, for the user groups, again, the world of aquatics people, um, Fort Lauderdale became a, uh, a common destination because of our year round weather uh, for, for the people who live up north. So in 1965, uh, they built the first 50 meter pool uh, on a peninsula that was actually built out into the intercoastal waterway here in Fort Lauderdale. And they also built a diving well and stands and all that. Well, as time rolled on, uh, everything has a life cycle. And so those pools um, got old. And so we're currently shut down. The facilities are shut down. The pool facilities are shut down right now uh, because there's a new 50-meter pool being built along with a uh, new diving well. And interestingly enough, at the last minute, uh, in addition to the standard diving tower up to 10 meters, um, there will be a 27 meter tower uh, for high diving. That's 92 feet above water level. And uh, wow. because, um, because there's, it seems there's a demand uh, for uh, TV, t uh, TV uh, interests, uh, Olympics and all that, uh, there's a demand for high diving. And uh, the only Currently, the only other high diving facility in the world is in, uh, located in China. And so uh, we are building one here, which will complement the brand new diving pool, the new 50 meter pool. And then there's a, a second 50 meter pool that's used for warm-ups during meets. And that, because that was built around 1890. Well, that's exciting. That's yeah. exciting news for the, the Hall of Fame down there. Right, right. And we ha there's a proposal floating that will also include tearing down the two buildings that we occupy and building new state-of-the-art facilities there. And uh, 
Um, I do have pictures of all that if, if you wanted to upload them, but uh, we haven't discussed that. So but I'll just move on uh, to uh, how this whole thing started um, for me personally in 1990, actually 1989, one of the founders and pioneers of the modern swimming pool industry, again, where I live, uh, his name was Bob Hoffman. He was one of the two co-publishers of one of the national trade, uh, trade magazines for the pool industry called Swimming Pool Age. Well, Bob lived about five miles from our office. And uh, one day he called me and he said, he says, have you ever been to the Hall of Fame? And I said, no. He says, well, there's a big meeting coming up in a couple of weeks and I'd like, like to have you come. Uh, I've been representing the swimming pool industry uh, for a couple of decades and I'm getting old. And so I need somebody that's younger to uh, come down and see if you're interested in being involved in the Hall of Fame. Sounds like and you got recruited. It sounds like you got recruited. <laughs> I, I got recruited. Um, I had already been very active in the National Trade Association and the technical committee that wrote all the national standards. I had been involved in that for a long time. And I kind of knew all of the players in our world of, uh, on the uh, pool industry side of things. Well, I walked into a room with about 50 people in it uh, with Bob Hoffman, and I didn't know a soul. <laughs> and it really, wow, I didn't know a single person in the room. And so that shocked me. And that's when I first started to understand that our swimming pool industry is parallel to the world of aquatics. And then I learned about Every Child a Swimmer because that, back then the actual founder of Every Child a Swimmer was one of the uh, men who actually founded uh, the Swimming Hall of Fame here in Fort Lauderdale in 1965. He was a local judge. His name was G. Harold Martin. And when I met him in 1989, he was probably in his late 80s, around 88 or 89 years old. And uh, after talking to him for five minutes, uh, I knew what he was all about because he must have used the words every child was swimmer about 10 times in the first five minutes. <laughs> well, Things moved very rapidly, and all of a sudden, I became a board member of the Swimming Hall of Fame. And within a couple of months, I was the treasurer of the Swimming Hall of Fame because business is my game. That's what my doctorate's in and uh, is in global business. And so I'm pretty good when it comes to reading financial statements and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, and so I shortly became the treasurer for the Swimming Hall of Fame. Judge Martin was, of course, on the board. And he was one of those magical characters. So I always tried to sit next to him at a board meeting. <laughs> and um, so, and every time I did, and this lasted for like two or three years, every time I did, all I, all I ever heard about from Judge Martin was every child should learn to swim. And he told me his story about he almost drowned three times and before he was 20 years old. And anyway, he was a passionate man and inspirational to me. And, um, but being the treasurer is kind of a backseat position. Uh, I had never really planned because I'm again, not from the world of aquatics and the hall of fame is all about aquatics. Uh, I never really, um, planned on becoming chairman of the board, uh, because that brings obligations with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I will, because I've continued to stay active in the trade association here in Florida and at some levels in the national. And then of course there was the national swimming pool foundation, 
uh, with the Certified Cooperator Program, and, and I was on that board uh, for 20 years or longer than that, actually. And um, so anyway, um, uh, when I became chairman of the board of the Hall of Fame uh, three years ago, uh, suddenly I felt the obligation to do something about every child of swimmer because, frankly, it had fallen on hard times uh, yeah. at the Hall of Fame. And so since and you were, then... You were I've inspired. Been, you were inspired I, by the judge years exactly, ago. Uh, Lauren, exactly right. He was unforgettable. And um, it's so anyway... It's once in a lifetime that you get to meet somebody like that that's inspiring like that. You're absolutely right. There's only been a handful of people in my life that have had that kind of an impact on me, but Judge Martin was one of them. He was an unbelievably inspirational man. And uh, he did die of it, like 92 or 93 years old a few years uh, later, but I, I never forgot it. So I, anyway, I, I think the inspiration that he gave the people is why he lived so long. Usually, you know, you got something like that that keeps you alive and passionate. It keeps you going a while. Right. So, so just, that's what I'm hoping for myself. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> 78. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to this short intermission to hear from our co-sponsor of the podcast today. I want to say thank you, Skimmer, for being a co-sponsor of the Let's Talk About Pools podcast. Enjoy the rest of the podcast, guys. This is Skimmer, software for the modern pool professional. What can you do with Skimmer? See all your customers on a map, build service routes quickly, and let Skimmer optimize them for you. Access customer information, including contact details and full service history anytime and anywhere. Customize work orders to track jobs like repairs and filter cleanings. Email your customers when you complete a service. You can include service details and on-site photos. Does your customer need a part? Add it to the shopping list and track it from purchase to installation. Skimmer will even remind you what parts you need for the day, and you can mark them as installed right when you're finished. Skimmer doesn't just store your service history. It helps you get paid. We integrate with QuickBooks Online for fast, easy invoicing. And we've got more billing options coming soon. All that's just the beginning. Go to GetSkimmer.com to watch our demo video, check out our online tutorials, and see if Skimmer is right for you. So this is just for fun for our audience listening. Um, doesn't have anything to do with swim lessons, but what significant people have you met at the Hall of Fame or have been at the Hall of Fame that you know of? Oh, uh, pretty much every one of the Olympic heroes that you heard of, from Michael Phelps to uh, Greg Luganis to Mark Spitz to... You know, Mark Spitz was actually chairman of the board for a couple of years at the Hall of Fame. Um, so Donna, Donna Di Verona was the chairman of the board uh, prior to myself. Um, and then when Bruce Weigo, uh, who had been the head of U.S. Uh, uh, water polo, became chairman of the board in around the 2000 or 2001, I think, um, uh, he he inspired me uh, to come back because uh, I had left the board in the late 90s um, uh, for a while. Um, but pretty much everybody that you can think of, Rowdy Gaines, who lives in Orlando and has been has helped the Orlando chapter of the Trade Association with their Learn to Swim program up there, which I'm very happy about. <clears throat> so pretty much anybody that's an Olympic uh, person that gets inducted into the Hall of Fame comes to the honoree ceremonies and 
there's a lot of people from literally all over the world who have been inducted. Uh, water polo, you know, there's the four basic yeah. disciplines of aquatics. Um, so uh, it's it's a kind of a fun thing. Um, they're all just passionate users of swimming pools. They spend their lives in pool water. Um, so that's kind of um, uh, interesting for me because most of the time I've never, well, for, frankly, in, in the now 30 years from the beginning of my activity at the Hall of Fame, I've never met one of our customers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, our pool industry people, as I said, yeah. we, run, we run in an industry parallel to the world of aquatics people. So it's, I, it's user groups versus the people that are servicing pools or purchasing chemicals or anything like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and frankly, uh, the reason that I uh, was inspired to become the president of the National Trade Association back then, it was called the National Spa and Pool Institute or National Swimming Pool Institute, uh, different periods. Um, was in 1995, I had been in the Hall of Fame for five years, and I had realized that there is this great need for the two industries to collaborate with each other uh, because the pool industry has strengths and the world yeah. aquatics has strengths, and together one plus one would equal three. So I ran for national office solely with the mission of trying to get um, the pool industry people involved with aquatics people uh, around the United States. I'm, I'm talking about because all of the trade association activities are based on local yeah. chapters. Uh, act, and so in every local chapter has high schools and swim clubs and all that sort of thing. So there would have been an opportunity to collaborate with that. And, and frankly, I'm still working on that 15 years later. Um, it's been very successful, except here in Florida. I, we, the Every Child a Swimmer program, as it's been re-energized in the last couple of years, has picked up some mojo here. And um, I'm excited because I've got two of the 16 chapters now have active programs here in Broward and in uh, Central Florida. We have, um, in fact, in Central Florida, they've just recently in the last couple of months taught over 100 kids to swim with scholarship money. Wow, that's, that's awesome. In other words, there's a whole lot of people who are going to learn to swim anyway, but what we're really targeting with this program is people who, for one reason or another, economically uh, uh, can't afford swim lessons. So we're giving scholarships to um, families that can't afford it uh, to have their children learn to swim. What is the leading cause of death for children's ages zero to four? Lauren, you already know the answer to that question. Yes, I do. <laughs> and it's a sad fact. Uh, I prefer to focus on the positive side of the benefits of swimming and all that. Um, I do collaborate with those people who are involved in the drowning, what we call the drowning prevention groups. Uh, and I have been supportive of them. But at the same time, um, there's a, um, a, 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 it's a better story if you just talk about all the benefits of, of uh, learning to swim. In so, fact, that, that brings up something else that I used in that um, uh, World Aquatic Health Conference program. If you want, I can uh, briefly tell you that uh, the National Swimming Pool Foundation about 15 years ago or 10, 12 years ago um, had found a researcher named Dr. Stephen Blair. He's at the University of South Carolina. 
And um, he took uh, data that had been generated over a 40-year period um, uh, between 1970 and 2005, 35 years, sorry, 40,000 participants. Uh, there's an institute wow. called the Cooper Institute in um, Dallas that uh, had started measuring mortality rates uh, and doing risk analysis. And basically they focused on four lifestyles, a sedentary lifestyle, uh, people who run, people who walk, and people who swim. All, and of course those are all what I call regular uh, users. And uh, the, uh, in other words, if you're sedentary and there's a whole lot of people who really don't have any form of exercise as a, as a habit in their life, um, that just means that they don't do anything, biking or racket sports or swimming or anything. And then there's the walkers, runners, and swimmers. And uh, statistically, um, this research that Dr. Blair did was able to prove that the uh, mortality, or the risk of dying uh, was uh, more than double for a sedentary person than a swimmer. And then uh, even for a walker, uh, we did better. And a runner, we actually did better too. So swimming, as it turns out, um, <clears throat> was the best form of exercise for avoiding uh, premature death. Um, and that, uh, that, that's a, a research paper that got third-party uh, third reviewed. And so it's-, it's that, speak, that speaks a lot for the swimming pool industry right there. It, it speaks a lot for people learning, knowing not only knowing how to swim, but actually swimming. Right. Uh, it, they're going to live a longer, more fulfilling life if they're exactly. actually swimming. Yeah. And, and that's uh, a big part of what drives me, actually. So. So I know every child a swimmer is is based in uh, Florida. So. With the whole goal of it is, I know you're trying to hone into the counties. There are certain counties in Florida that have higher drowning risks. Um, what are some of those counties that have the highest drowning statistics in Florida? Well, uh, I don't know the counties by name, uh, but what I do know is, is that the higher the population of pools, I, there was some research that was done by the Department of Health uh, about 25 years ago, believe it or not, 20, 25 years ago. And it seems like the drowning rate drops when there's more pools. Now that's kind of counterintuitive, but, uh, it, but it also makes sense because people who own pools typically will make sure that, that they uh, know how to swim and that everybody in the household knows how to swim. It also creates, uh, you know, the issue for young, very young children in that zero to four category. Statistically, uh, it creates uh, an increased opportunity. Um, but at the same time, in general, from an overall standpoint, uh, fewer people drown when there's more pools around. So that actually kind of makes sense when you think about it. Um, you know, the, the amount of time that someone spends in their home also matters. Uh, COVID uh, has had a side effect of doubling the rate of child drowning, according to uh, my friends in the uh, dr uh, drowning uh, prevention community. 
That's what my understanding is from a presentation that I had seen that was presented recently uh, based on data just from March through, I think it was about August. So it was a very small statistical analysis from the Department of Health that their drowning uh, rates had gone up because, and they theorize it could be because of COVID because people are home more. So I, that has uh, totally affected um, our, our statistics right now. I totally agree that it's a unique thing right. this year that we normally don't deal with. By, um, by the way, one, one little side, side note, since we're talking about uh, swimming and drowning, <clears throat> the definition of swimming uh, is not something where you have to swim across a 50-meter pool. <clears throat> I got this from Bruce Weigo, um, who's now our historian at this Hall of Fame. Uh, the definition of swimming is to be as comfortable and move as easily in deep water as on land. In other words, uh, fear is really what uh, causes most people to drown. Uh, they panic when they get in the water because they don't know how to, to manage themselves. So swimming is just being as comfortable and being able to move as easily in deep water as on land makes a lot of sense from a definition standpoint. In other words, uh, if you can't swim across a, um, a 20 meter, a 20 or 25 meter pool, you can still be a swimmer. We don't have, it's not, there's a difference between just the basic skill set and getting involved in competitive aquatics and all the things that come with that. Right. So what we're saying is it's the difference between competitive swimming and just recreational swimming in your backyard pool where you just Correct. kind of swim in a small area. It's not it doesn't always have to be defined as a lap pool with lap lanes or a diving well or anything like that. Just so our audience understands what we're talking about. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, Lauren, that uh, one of the uh, neg the negative things about the Swimming Hall of Fame in terms of its general presence in the community, and I'm talking about the aquatics community, is people who are outside of competitive uh, aquatics, you know, all the Olympics are the ones that get 90% of the um, high-profile um, uh, media, um, but there's a whole bunch of other uh, swim clubs and high schools and colleges and all the rest of it. Um, so that's what gets all the attention in the media and uh, virtually everybody that's ever that I've ever served with at the Swimming Hall of Fame thinks that in many ways that's a distraction and a kind of a negative because really aquatics is about just knowing how to swim in other words not being fearful uh, in water that's deeper than um, than your you know your head so that's so, kind of an interesting. Uh, that is very. That's very plan. interesting, Bill. Yeah. So it's a basic life skill. In other words, that's the key, uh, and we know that it's a happy, healthy form of family fun. We know that there are all kinds of uh, fringe benefits in terms of being submerged in water, lowers your blood pressure, and stuff like that. Um, but we won't. We're not here to get into that today. But uh, there's all kinds of other side benefits, both. Um, psychologically as well as physically uh, to being submerged in water. So I'm going to change gear a little bit. This is okay. getting into more politics. So how has politics affected uh, the promoting of every child a swimmer in Florida? 
Well, I think the politicians uh, that I've spoken to, uh, and of course, my general focus has been this program and this project of legislation, um, they're all for it. Um, the poll, we did a, a poll uh, two months ago in July, or three months ago, whatever it is, uh, of uh, 675 registered voters in the state of Florida. I was able to piggyback on a poll uh, through a polling agency in Jacksonville uh, that um, was not talking about, that was not the topic, but I was allowed to ask two questions. A, do you know how to swim? And B, uh, do you believe that every child should learn to swim? And we had over 90% uh, agree with the proposition that every child should learn to swim, which is actually shocking when you think about it. Uh, according to a fellow that I it helped me um, make this connection on the poll. Uh, his name is Dominic Calabro, and he's the head of a organization that our company belongs to called Florida Tax Watch. According to him, uh, only 79% of the people in the United States believe that there's a God. So when he saw <laughs> the results, when he saw the results that over 90% agreed to swim, he was astounded. And so he's now become a bit of a collaborator. Uh, Florida Tax Watch is not a lobbying organization in, in Tallahassee. It's a um, watchdog organization. And it works closely and cooperatively with uh, some of the government people up there uh, as a third party to study the impact of some of their spending programs. Uh, and, and they give uh, the legislators involved uh, uh, feedback uh, which evidently the, those people, the government people want to know uh, the side effects of how they're spending the money that they're spending up there. And so, um, so it's, a, it's a very well thought of uh, an influential organization, but it doesn't lobby. So I'm having, I can't get uh, Mr. Calabro to uh, be my uh, uh, political interface, uh, but he believes in, in every child a swimmer. And so he's helping me uh, on a sort of a side basis to uh, make the connections that I need because I have not been a political animal uh, in my career uh, beyond just representing the swimming pool industry. So that's kind of a new venture for you there. With this, I love it. With this I, love, I love the adventure. <laughs> so this is still along the same route, but not political. It's more economical. So do you think economics affects uh, the access that parents have to get affordable swim lessons for their children? Well, I think, <clears throat> I think our society has, you know, we have economically disadvantaged groups at the bottom and they get a lot of attention and a lot of government support. And then there's the middle class and the upper class. And I think uh, in the middle and upper class, which is the main market for residential swimming pools, let's, let's not forget that there's more, little more than a million, like 1.2 or 1.3 million residential swimming pools in the state of Florida. Uh, so that we, that space <clears throat> is well developed uh, as it is in other states. It's not just Florida. Um, pretty much all the Sunbelt states have very vibrant uh, residential mm -hmm. swimming pool industries. Uh, at the local level. Uh, and that's true even like in the Northeastern part of the United States. Um, we have operations in our company in the Northeast and we sell a whole lot of swimming pool heat pumps and salt chlorine generators up there uh, because there's a very vibrant uh, residential swimming pool industry. 
um, the com- competition pools and the, what I would call the commercial pool segment, uh, which that's where the aquatics people uh, live, is a smaller number uh, from a pure number standpoint. But yeah. where, wherever you go, there's always going to be, and this is global, our company has uh, active customers in a little over 100 countries. Uh, our export division, and I've spent a significant amount of my life outside the United States uh, working with uh, our customers in all these different countries. And um, uh, so this, it's the same everywhere in terms of the first world. And we're not talking about Central Africa here. We're talking yeah. about the first, the first world part of the human race. And um, it's pretty much the same everywhere. Yeah, from what I see, there's always very limited slots for affordable swim lessons offered in the local community that I know locally where I live, it would be our when our city pool was open, my husband would go down there at 5 a.m. in the morning and stand, get in line, kind of like you're getting rock really hard rock concert tickets. They didn't open the gates for registration until 8 a.m. So you sit there for three hours just to get a slot for swim lessons for your child through the local city or county pool. So there's all the people that get there later that don't get a slot if they're all filled. So I think, I think that. Yeah, but Laura, if someone wants to have their children learn to swim, there's a will. And if there's a will, there's a way. Uh, there's yeah. lots of lots of uh, charitable organizations out there, which is really the best way to solve most of these problems anyway. Um, I mean, I have a foundation and, and I've been uh, co-oping uh, all of the funds raised for the trade association uh, on Learn to Swim. Um, there's always a way if someone has the will. We'll, we'll find a way to get them if they really truly can't afford it we'll find a way of uh, making sure they get the swim lesson. And frankly, most swim schools that I've talked to, if they run into somebody that's truly uh, economically in hardship, um, they'll give them a deal. I mean, again, most of the swim schools are all small businesses uh, under 10 employees. And um, just like our swimming pool industry, uh, most uh, 80% of our customers are 10 or less employees. So uh, there's always a way, uh, and then the swim schools, the, the people that I know in swim schools are way more focused on the spiritual mission of just teaching uh, kids to swim, um, or not just kids, adults to swim as well. Uh, they're way more focused on that than they are uh, economics. Um, so if they, if they run into a problem with economics, they'll solve it. It's a wonderful industry, the aquatic industry overall on both sides, the users and the suppliers and the, the owners. Everybody is always so wonderful in trying to, and it's been a mission of a lot of different organizations for the swim lessons and, and you know, prevention of drowning. So I know there, you had mentioned scholarships earlier. Uh, where could people find out about scholarships to help fund swim lessons for their child if they're needing to get swim lessons and they're economically uh, having a hard time? Well, just have them them contact you since you're the sponsor of this uh, podcast. (laughs) And then you can contact me and I'll tell you, depending on where they are geographically, I'm happy to help help with uh, sorting all that out. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dr. Kent. 
And do you feel uh, there's more uh, closures of government-owned pools um, lately due to economics and budget cuts? Uh, government has still been lagging behind uh, the housing market crash. They never really came back completely from it, or at least seemed to not, you know, act like they have. So there, I know of two pools locally where it was a big deal about doing any repairs. We both know that, you know, city-owned pools, county-owned pools, they don't make money. They spend more money on maintaining it than they do making money off of any programs that they have. So between the, the government and the, the, the residents, do you feel that this will affect uh, swim lessons um, for our children in the state of Florida? Uh, long, term, long term, no. Short term, of course, there's a, a collateral damage uh, to the lockdown that, you know, and this is polit more political than not. But it's my opinion that the economic lockdown that the government has imposed on us, our uh, citizenry, uh, has had more collateral damage than any flu could ever uh, ever do. Um, but, you know, we're just, we all have our opinions as citizens. Um, I have been uh, watching what's going on, uh, and I've uh, had some input from legislators who are running for re-election next week, and uh, there will be a cutback. Uh, I mean, the state of Florida spends like, last year, like $93 billion uh, operating the state. And I think they're planning on like a $3 billion cutback. I mean, think about it, that's only 3%. So it's not yeah. on a relative scale of things uh, that big a deal. But um, there's always more demand for funding than there is funding, no matter what the tax base brings right. in. Uh, the state of Florida has a constitutional requirement of a balanced budget, which is a beautiful thing. And uh, so there, there may be some tangential cutbacks uh, on swimming pools. Uh, and of course, what you were talking about has more to do with local uh, government, local governments mm -hmm. rather than state government. So, um, but I, you know, I'm just not a, not a supporter at all of what's happened as far as the lockdown is concerned. I think that was a huge mistake, um, but that's just my personal opinion on it. Um, we'll all survive it. We'll all survive it. And whether or not it's looked on five years from now as the, as the right strategy for managing a, uh, what they call a pandemic, uh, that, that'll be a different issue yeah. that'll be looked on. But um, I, I, don't, I don't know that what we can do about any of that. We just have to live through it. Uh, the pool industry, by the way, has boomed because of the, of the lockdown and the pandemic. Yes, it has. That, that's what I've heard everywhere. Everybody says they're so, so busy. There's, so, there's short, there are actual shortages of equipment, yeah. <laughs> believe it or not. Yes. Uh, our manufacturing business is uh, operating <laughs> at its absolute maximum capacity as are the other uh, major suppliers in the pool industry of all the, even basic pool equipment like pumps and filters uh, have been in short yeah. shortages. And just the example that I had with a lo local pool I knew of with a local government, 
they actually had a city council meeting and lots of residents showed up wanting their local pool not to be closed. It was a pool that was built in the 1960s, been part of the community for a very long time. If they close, the, the city council was looking to close the pool and turn it into a skate park because they said that the pool wasn't making money and was actually eating money out of their budget. So what can, uh, and, and this is before COVID. So, um, and then there's another pool locally as well that it was closed for about two and a half years and the city did not want to spend the $550,000 to repair the pool. They finally sat down after citizens showed up to their city council meetings and said, we need the pool. It's the only pool in the city, which it's one of the largest cities in the top 10 in the state of Florida. So without having that pool, they lose the pool for their swim meets for high schools. So beyond COVID, when the city, and this is more local than it is state, how should cities look at that when it comes to swim lessons that are offered at these swimming pools for the local residents? And if those pools are closed to be turned into a skate park, there's not really that point of swim lessons. Now you have to find private swim lessons or, you know, a local swim school if they have one in their community. How do you feel about that? Well, I think what you're struggling, <clears throat> what you're struggling with is uh, how uh, the elected officials uh, view uh, their priorities and the scope of government. Uh, in other words, should, should the local governments uh, really be in the business of, of providing a swimming pool? <clears throat> Uh, you'd have to go back and so, sort of reprioritize, well, what is the function of government? Uh, and uh, they, certainly if swimming is a basic life skill, for those that uh, don't have private pools to, to learn to swim in and to swim in regularly, mm -hmm. uh, having a community pool uh, to me is not a stretch at all. It's a, it's a, it's a priority that should be provided. <clears throat> you know, if um, they provide uh, skateboard parks, well, how many people are going to ever die if they don't know how to skateboard? None. How many people are going to die if they don't know how to swim? A significant number. So yeah. if, if you want to keep the topic, but in the end, I believe that I'd be able to win that debate. Uh, versus other sports or providing uh, facilities for basketball or whatever else is, it is that the city officials uh, have in mind. You know, there are, are there more important basic government functions? Yeah, sure. Uh, the sewer system and the traffic system and the police, uh, you know, because we don't have uh, a civilization without law and order. Um, and so all of those are primary functions of government. Uh, but when you get beyond the primary functions of government, I think that um, having community pools where someone can learn to swim uh, if they don't have a backyard pool uh, and not only can learn, because once you learn, you want to continue on it because it's mm -hmm. such a happy, healthy, uh, fun type of uh, sport, let's call it at that point. I think we just connected the dots pretty well with our episode so far right there. 
And then what do you well, I think th we're on the same page? That's for sure. Yes, we are. So what do you think the future looks like in Florida um, regarding your initiative towards every child a swimmer? Well, I live in hope. <laughs> and because I've had little baby steps of progress, I think it's going to happen. I honestly think because, it, first of all, <clears throat> anything that costs money will be scrutinized heavily in tw for the 2021 uh, legislature uh, post-election. Uh, but this proposal doesn't cost the government a dime. And so right away, that's good. And then when you look at a poll that says 90% of the people agree that every child should learn to swim, and all we're doing is taking, uh, putting the topic on the radar for the parents of people going into kindergarten. While it's not the ideal solution, it's, it's a, a step in that direction. Um, because again, pr from a practical standpoint, the school systems are a quagmire of politics and, and money. And we know that we're never going to get legislation that, that requires that the school system teach every child to swim. So if that's an, an impossible task, let's just focus on what is possible. And what is possible is uh, having um, the parents questioned about, did you teach your child to swim when you're in a kindergarten? That's the first gate in terms of uh, the educational system uh, that's required. I think that I think that would be I think that would be awesome. So, is there any final words that you have for our, our audience on this episode? Um, final words? No, I think I think we've covered it all. Uh, let's just agree that it's a happy, healthy thing that uh, that we provide for the people who uh, get into the pools. And uh, I know personally, I'm inspired by it uh, every day. Um, the reality of our business is way different than that. We're, we're help, helping our customers who are pool contractors of one sort or another. They're either pool builders or service or renovation or retail stores, whatever. But at the same time, um, what really is compelling is the ultimate result that all of us can collectively uh, do, and that's provide a happy, safe environment for people to enjoy their lives. Well, thank you very much for being on our episode today, Dr. Kent. And it's been wonderful talking with you today. And you have a healthy uh, rest of your day. And you too, Lauren. Uh, I'm very grateful to provide uh, my thoughts. Thank you. Thanks for diving in today with the Let's Talk About Pools podcast. Be sure to follow us on our YouTube channel or our Facebook page. And feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts so more aquatic professionals like you can learn about the show. We appreciate it, and we'll catch you in the next episode of the Let's Talk About Pools podcast.